You're about to hear my conversation with Catherine Owen from our Global Equity and Income team. We recorded the conversation on February 14th of 2023, and we talk all about her approach to investment management, how she finds high-quality, well-valued stocks interesting, and what you can expect out of a global dividend portfolio. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Catherine Owen. Catherine is a portfolio manager for our global equity and income team. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Catherine, I thought we'd get started uh, today's conversation by talking a little bit about your background and early career. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what does your early career uh, look like? How did you get interested in investing and, and what stops did you make along the way before getting to McKinsey? Um, I guess ever since I was young, I always knew that um, I had a love for numbers and a love for math and also a love for business. Okay. So that's kind of how it ended up with my university trajectory. I uh, got a math degree as my undergrad, and then I went to do my MBA in finance and then ended up um, with a job in investments, actually working for one of the leading banks here in Toronto. And that is actually how I met Darren, oh, is that the right? manager of the group. We were analysts together. Um, in the mid-1990s at um, one of the major banks here. And okay. uh, then we worked together for a few years, went our separate ways, and then uh, we reunited back here at McKenzie. Wonderful. Uh, and when you went your separate ways, uh, where did you end up? Did you stay on the sell side or did you make your way to the buy side? I've always been on the buy side. I uh, never really had a desire to stay on the sell side. I just like the more kind of research uh, focused part of being on the buy side and also interacting with 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 clients, being um, being the fiduciary for for right. people's savings and and really just enjoying that that part of the job. Uh, so after Scotia, I um, went to a couple of different um, investment managers, but really spent the bulk of my career at a more value oriented managers, uh, one of the largest actually global value managers in the world. Uh, so I spent about 19 years of my my career yeah. there, so wow. a lifetime, learning a lot, going through a lot of cycles. I actually started there during during the tech bubble. Okay. As a value manager. <laughs> so uh, a tough time to start in a value shop, but then it got a lot better. I'm assuming during that uh, that strong commodity led value cycle, and then yeah. more difficult again with uh, <laughs> uh, more recent until uh, the last uh, year or so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I've been through the best of times and the worst of times, um, and and now here at McKenzie, I think we're about to head into another another best of times. Great. Well, I, I, I'm interested in uh, when you joined McKenzie and that timing specifically, because uh, uh, I believe that you joined. Uh, um, sort of in during the COVID uh, lockdowns. And when I think about what uh, Darren and the team has done in general on, on the sort of flagship global dividend fund, the rotation from uh, sort of uh, into more value-oriented stocks, uh, I'd love to hear more about that uh, and and uh, your decision to come over to McKenzie. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ironic things about me coming to McKenzie was um, you know, I, I went from a more traditional value shop to clearly a team 
that's much more flexible and, and style agnostic in, in their approach. And honestly, one of the things I was most excited about in terms of coming over was that I would never have to buy another energy stock again, <laughs> buy another traditional bank again. And I, I remember the first few months I was here, I, you know, Dear and I had this conversation and we were like, I think we need to buy energy. I think we need to buy, oil. <laughs> we need to buy more banks. And I, and, and I said, and he, anyway, I was like, I can't believe I'm saying this, Darren, but I think we do. Right. So that really was kind of our, our initial foray um, into building um, these positions in, in what you can call more traditional Valley stocks. And when did that happen? That happened. I joined, um, actually joined during COVID. I was one of the first hires, which was interesting. I'm in sure. Uh, and then I officially joined McKenzie in the fall of 2020. So okay. October, 2020. Uh, and that was, you know, really, a really tough time because we were still right in the midst of, midst of COVID. Right. Really no end in sight. And then about a month after I joined, uh, Pfizer announced the, the vaccine with really, really incredible results and really kind of change the world, change the outlook in really a matter of, I would say, seconds, right? Right. Within, the, within that announcement. Um, prior to, to that announcement, the portfolio was more defensively positioned. Um, and we made the decision after the vaccine announcement that we actually needed to add more economic sensitivity um, to the portfolio, add more so-called reopening um, plays and, and energy um, was a natural because right. people went from no driving, no flying, no sure, of course, yes, <laughs> to um, to doing all that again. So we thought that would be an obvious beneficiary, and then banks also fit into that category. And then just adding more economically sensitive stocks, like like even Coca Cola, which you wouldn't even think of as as a reopening play, but the fact was that about. 50% of their sales was actually generated outside of the home. So they were actually very impacted right. by people not going to bars or restaurants and, and movies, right? So, so um, so we so we actually made quite quite a few changes um, to the portfolio um, within about like six months of, of my joining the team, just just because the environment changed. Of course, um, and your skill set, I guess, coming from a value-oriented shop uh, means that the, you were up to speed on these names, uh, could implement more quickly than, than perhaps otherwise. I'm curious, um, uh, clearly the timing was, uh, was great at that point, uh, and, and they've been successful trades. Where do you stand now uh, with, uh, with the portfolio, and, and how are you thinking about it? Um, I, honestly, as everyone knows, it feels like we've been through, I don't know how many cycles over the last two and a half years. It just, there's just been so, so many changes. And normally we really, you know, don't, don't try to make these big, big changes that have these big macro views, but really right. the environment over the last couple of years, you really had to think a lot more about macro than probably at any time over the last 10 years, hmm. um, because you, you just wanted to be able to, to position the portfolio um, the most effectively um, in, in terms of the changes that were, that were happening. Um, so I mentioned um, 2020 when the vaccine was um, 
developed that 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 really was kind of a line in line in the sand in terms of how the markets behaved and, and maybe the beginning of what can be called a regime shift right. in, in, in the market. Um, and one part of that regime shift had to do with inflation. Where was inflation going? Because we went for an environment that had zero inflation or very, mm-hmm. very little inflation to environment that where inflation was actually heating up quite rapidly during 2021. Sure. And if you recall, there was a lot of debate at that time in terms of how transitory it would be, how sticky it would be, how higher it could go. And um, our team, especially Darren, um, through the quarterly letters, uh, we were very vocal, stating that we did not believe that inflation was going to be as transitory as the market believed. And we believed that there was a chance that it could be stickier and higher for longer. And we positioned our portfolio accordingly, um, which is you know, one reason why we did um, go from zero energy stocks at the end of 2020 to right. now five energy stocks in the portfolio today. Um, we went from one bank to now four banks in the portfolio, mm. and then also bought a mining company called Glencore, which is a major producer of copper. And you know, when we're thinking about inflation and, and investing in, in stocks that could benefit from inflation, um, I mean, I want to emphasize that it, it wasn't necessarily 100% a top-down view. We are stock pickers. We are very bottom-oriented. So you know, one of the important roles these stocks played for the portfolio was as an inflation hedge. But maybe more importantly, we believed in the long-term thesis for owning these stocks where right. there was a lot of underinvestment, um, some due to ESG reasons, some due to economical reasons, um, that would lead to a structural undersupply situation for these industries for many years to come, which we believed would underpin right, um, 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 commodity prices um, for the sector and support much higher cash flow generation than the market believed. So I think, you know, there were, there were really two sides to our investment in these commodity stocks. One was to act as a, a hedge for inflation in the portfolio. And second was really based on the bottom-up analysis of that structural under, undersupply. Maybe I'll zero in a little bit on that sort of tension, call it, between the top-down and bottom-up approach. Um, You referenced uh, inflation as an example. Um, Knowing how you invest and knowing the the amount of effort that you put into sort of bottom-up research, I can't imagine that if uh, long-term inflation is 2.1 or 2.2, that that's going to figure too much into uh, what companies you select. So where where do you draw the line and and how do you sort of combat that tension between top-down and bottom-up? Um, I, I think, you know, when we're thinking of even just having a view, uh, we, we always think of, of where we could be wrong, right? right? So what we're always trying to do when, when, when we construct a portfolio is we have kind of one foot in each camp. So whether or not we want to be defensive or offensive, like we'll always have a bit of both. Same with right. like value versus growth. So we want to ensure that at all times the portfolio is as, as diversified as possible, but maybe having having a bit of a tilt. And even in terms of some of our views um, that if we're wrong, it's, it's, it's not going to torpedo the returns of the portfolio. Right. So we want to be able to, to just really try to be or create the portfolio in such a way that it's as resilient as possible across many different market environments. So, so I think 
you know, in terms of balancing that top down versus bottom up view, I mean, it's, it's, it's like you said, there, there, there's always a balance, but how we do it is through kind of those tilts or even position sizing. So for example, um, three years ago, Sherwin-Williams, the paint company, was one of the larger positions in the portfolio. Today, for obvious reasons, given the headwinds to housing and the economy, it's, it's one of the smallest positions in the portfolio. So we do that trade-off more in terms of position sizing um, while trying to keep that long-term view because at the end of the day, we want to own great businesses mm. for the long-term. But sometimes from a portfolio perspective or a macro perspective, it makes more sense to have it in the bottom 10 versus a top 10 position. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and when I think about the way that you, you construct portfolios and in your investment style, I think core uh, is how we, we hold you out as, as a, sort of from a style perspective. The other thing that's quite important to your process is dividends. Um, you manage dividend-oriented strategies. Um, why, why are dividends important? And, and what do you expect investors will benefit from dividends going forward? Uh, well, I think dividends are really um an obvious sign of the cash flow quality of a company right. and that ability to put, pay dividends through good times and bad really is a, is, is a very strong signal of, of the resilience uh, and quality of, of that business. Um, but when we're thinking about dividends, I mean, I think how you get that dividend is just as important um, as the dividend yield itself. So when we're looking at companies that pay dividends, we want to ensure that those dividends are, are sustainable, are durable. And ideally, companies can increase those dividends year after year after year. year. Um, and when you look at the types of companies that we own, by and large, most of them have been paying dividends and increasing the dividends year after year, and not just for one year, three years, five years, but we're talking 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, like, like Coke and Pepsi, two of our right. major holdings. They, I think it's something like 61 years that they've increased dividends year after year. We own Johnson & Johnson, Union Pacific, Roche, like I can you know, go, go name, name, name many more. So, so to us, um, the ability to generate strong cash flows is really a sign of a company's competitive advantage, their moat, if you will. And, and that, to us, is really what we spend a lot of time on in terms of ensuring that durability of the business to, to ensure that their cash flows are sustainable so they, they can continue to pay um, dividends, growing dividends over time. Makes a lot of sense. I guess, um, so really, you're, you're focusing in on quality, focusing on the ability to generate that cash flow. Um, that usually comes with a trade-off in valuation. Uh, when you think about the highest quality uh, businesses, people obviously want to own them. They're, they're, great, uh, they're great businesses. How do you think about valuation, and when do you think things are too stretched, or, or how does that uh, come into the calculus? Yeah. I mean, clearly there, there, there's a price for everything. And we believe that a company's valuation is too expensive. We will sell it out of the portfolio. And similarly, if we believe that there is some degradation um, in the quality of the business, we really want to take, it, take a hard look and possibly um, and sell it out, out of the portfolio too. Uh, but, but you're right, like in terms of these quality companies, 
they do tend to trade at a premium because everyone knows that they are high quality, they're great businesses, they're going to be around for the next 10, 20, 30, 30 years. Uh, what's, I think, very interesting about a portfolio today is what you're getting for your money. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the valuation of our portfolio, the Global Dividend Fund, you'll see that the price to earnings ratio of the portfolio is is, is about a 10% premium to the market. So okay. like 17 times versus 16 times for the MSCI World Index. So 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 very slight premium. Um, I would say lower lower than historical. Yet when you look at the quality attributes of the portfolio, whether you're looking at ROE, ROIC, operating margins, the companies we own generate profits that are two times hmm. better than the index. And then when you look at the dividend yield of the fund, it's actually greater than that of the index. So what I want to say is in terms of value for money, value for quality, value for yield, I believe that our portfolio offers so much better quality versus, versus a passive index. That's great. Um, maybe one last question. Uh, the the balance between quality and, and valuation makes a lot of sense. Why do you think that the market misprices that? Um, like, is it is there something about um, the excitement of the of certain stocks that uh, cause them to be overvalued, or or there there seems like there's a systemic or or frequent call it mispricing of these high quality dividend producing stocks. What do you what do you think is behind that? Um, well, in the short term, a lot of this market action is driven by by fear and greed. Right. Right. Um, and I think in 2021, you saw a lot of greed. It was a very narrative driven market. And the most speculative stocks with no profits, sure. were losing money, were some of the best performers in the market. And then in 2022, when rates went up, when kind of people started focusing more on valuations, focusing more on fundamentals, on really what the true durability of that business is, we saw you know a lot of these companies, most speculative companies with the biggest gains, really, really collapse. Sure. And collapse quite a bit. And I think you know now, I mean, we we seem to be in a bit of a <laughs> somewhat of a frenzy. Um, to start the year in that the that 2022's worst performers so far seem to be the best performers to date. Right. In 21 or 23. So you've seen some sort of a reversion to the mean. But when you're looking at the data, when you're looking at the fundamentals, and even when you're looking at the the trends in terms of the broader economy. It's it's not getting better, right? Yet these stocks are getting more expensive when you're looking at the valuation of these companies because the earnings aren't getting better, but the price keeps going higher. So at the end of the day, I think the rule of thumb is expect expensive stocks can't stay expensive forever, just mm -hmm. like cheap stocks can't stay cheap forever, right? Like you, if you just think about energy, two years ago it was left for dead. For sure. Right. And and then they became the best performers in 2022. Um, 2021, you saw a lot of these high flyers like Peloton, Zoom, you know, do really, really well. And, you know, they're having kind of their bit of a bit of a 
<laughs> a, a relief rally. I should say. Sure. But but I think time would tell whether or not the that the current prices are are deserve the, the valuation that that's assigned. So I think, you know, for us being research intensive fundamental investors, we spend a lot of time looking at companies um, and, and looking at, at the competitive advantages and ensuring that they are sustainable, that they are durable over, over time. So the companies we own like Diageo, Roche, even Novo Nordisk, the diabetes company, um, Union Pacific, we can be pretty confident that they are going to be around over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years with very similar economics. Right. Whereas if you kind of take a, a look at some of the, I guess, high flyers in 2021 that are very new businesses that are yet to prove that they can earn money or profits on a sustainable business, it's, I would say, it's TBD. So we're really not invested in any of those, not to say we never will. We just want to see how their unit economics evolve. But the companies that we own have proven track records of growth and we believe will continue to thrive and, and, and weather any, any economic storm that well, Catherine, let's uh, leave it at that. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Very interesting conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.